Hello, normal people. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Bible for Normal People podcast. Although, Jared, I'm a little uncomfortable saying inaugural. Why is that? Two months after something <laughs> happened in Washington. Anyway, let's let's make it political on the first one. Hey, welcome. Let's start over. Welcome, people, to the podcast, our normal <laughs> podcast of the and Bible for normal people. Half of the people just stopped. I know that's okay. You know what? Hey, whatever. Okay. Um. Anyway, what is the Bible? That's our topic today. We're talking. What is the Bible? And you know, we have a guest on today, who's who's really he's sort of shy. He's just starting out. Um, he's not really comfortable on a microphone or in front of a camera. His name's Rob Bell. You've definitely heard of him, I'm sure. But anyway, we're just happy to have him on the show. Rob's a tremendous. I'm a big fan of his. And uh, he's written some important stuff. And uh, it's good to have him aboard here to talk about what is the Bible. Yeah, he has a new book, actually, by that name, What is the Bible, coming out soon. And my first introduction to Rob Bell was way back when I was a, a pastor in my early years and his NUMA series, his videos mm-hmm. to really help churches, small groups, and others really influential for me. I'm really excited about it. But we want to start out with this question, and it's really appropriate to have Rob on with this question of what is the Bible, because this podcast is really kind of about that question. You know, we'll take a lot of different angles, and we'll look at it from a lot of perspectives. But at the end of the day, I think you and I are really curious about that question. Because it keeps coming up, and it's actually underneath a lot of controversies or tensions or difficulties that you experience in the church, it comes down to what do you do with an ancient book in a modern context? Mm-hmm. And, and that is not an easy question to answer. And we need all sorts of people to help answer that question, whether it's scholars or people like Rob, who's a practitioner, who's got his feet right on the ground and is talking to real life people about an issue like that. Yeah. And I'm really interested with Rob and others to not just ask what is the Bible, but what do we do with it? Oh, yeah. How do we use it as the church, as Christians, as people of faith, and how maybe we shouldn't use it. Right. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is the Bible and what do you do with it? So let's get in this conversation with Rob. You have real people writing in real places at real times. So I just begin with, you start there with the humanity, and any divinity you're going to stumble into, you'll get there honestly. Well, our guest Rob Bell is here. Rob, how are you? I'm doing great. Great talking to you all. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on the show here and uh, to talk about the Bible and such. Um, you've just written a book, right? It's coming out in a couple of months. What is the Bible? Yeah, what is the Bible? Comes what out is soon. What, I mean, and, uh, actually, let me, ask you, let me ask you a specific question because, you know, I haven't read the book yet. It's not out yet. Um, <clears throat> but I imagine that you've had a bit of an evolution in your thinking about the Bible. <laughs> Right. Well, who hasn't? I've, frankly, what thoughtful person hasn't at some point? Right. I actually think you've identified something very important. Yeah. Which well, is, talk about that. Tell, tell us. I think a lot of people. Well, I think I think you right off the bat you've identified something. Lots of people and evolution is aren't aware that an evolu- that an evolution in regards to any aspect of life or faith is an absolutely necessary, normal, and healthy part of being a human being. Mm-hmm. So like when you talk about, you've obviously had an evolution in regards to thinking about the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the natural state of things. 
What's scary is when people haven't, when they're exactly who they were and have the exact same framework and perspectives that they did, you know what I mean? 20 years mm-hmm. ago or something. Mm-hmm. In the, you think about biology, you think about the body, you think about cells, you think about systems, economic, philosophical, no evolution is death. Um, right. So I just love how you said that right away. What happened to me is I, I, uh, I, I preached a sermon right after I was in a band in college and we thought we were going to be the next, I thought we were going to be the next REM, which dates me. Um, and <laughs> then the band, then we all had, everybody had to get jobs cause that's what happens. And I preached a sermon around that time and I was like, Oh, this is, I'm going to reclaim the art of the sermon. I saw it like an art form that had been hijacked and forgotten, but that it's actually an ancient art form. And, and I got up to give that sermon and I took off my sandals. I was wearing Birkenstocks. I took off my sandals because I was aware I had this feeling like I was on holy ground and my life was never going to be the same again. Hmm. So that's what happened to me was I'm going to reclaim the sermon as an art form, as a guerrilla theater. Um, and hmm. like you think about Martin Luther King, I have a dream. That was, that was a happening. That was a moment. It was beautiful. It was provocative. It was dangerous. No one heard Martin Luther King. Do I have a dream? And they were like, I don't know. He was funnier last week. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody evaluated that or said, "Well, were we going to lunch this week?" Or I don't know. I think he was getting too political. It was, <laughs> it was an experience that you were caught up in, and it was dangerous and prophetic and subversive and hopeful, and it was all these things. So I sort of came out of band world into this. The sermon is an art form that is fundamentally disruptive in all the best sorts of ways, and in the tradition I came from, a sermon came from the Bible. So I went to seminary and studied the Bible and I was like, oh, you give sermons from the Bible. But then I got a job in a church like you do. And it was, and I talk about this actually in the new book, one of my first sermons, a guy comes up afterwards and he says to me, you missed it. I was like, I missed what? Mm -hmm. And he says, you missed all the stuff happening. And he says, my name is Richard. I'm Jewish. And you have to understand, Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> I remember being like, what? Even though I knew that, I didn't. It's somehow all of a sudden I heard that for the first time. He's like, Jesus was Jewish. So when he's with his disciples and he raises a cup at a Last Supper, there would have been four cups at a Passover Seder. Which cup did he raise? Or who were Hillel and Shammai? And how does that affect how you read the middle sections of Mark? And what is a ketubah and how does that affect the giving of the Ten Commandments? Because that was a wedding ceremony and that affects when Jesus talks about knowing he's referring to something. And it was like Richard <laughs> completely blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And he, he started dropping off at my office. I would have been 25, 26. He would drop off these photocopied articles. I'd say like, you're like a good drug dealer. He would, like, <laughs> drop off these articles. Like he would drop off an article by someone, you know, Shlomo Gorman. And mm-hmm. it would be... Abraham, what's, why is the book of Ruth in the Bible? And then he would say, oh, Abraham and Lot, Genesis 13, they separate. And Lot becomes the father of the Moabites and Ruth is a Moabitess. So mm-hmm. Boaz and Ruth coming together is Abraham and Lot who separated coming back together just in time for David. So the book of Ruth is actually putting something back together that got torn apart mm-hmm. generations earlier. So he would do that sort of stuff. Um, he would hand me stuff like that, and it just, it absolutely, the Bible went from like black and white to color. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that half of the Psalms were laments, yeah. people essentially like, is there even a God? And when I realized that everything in Acts with the early church and tongues of fire is, a, is there's a wink and a nod to the giving of the Torah at Sinai, like all of the question, inerrancy and fallibility, all that stuff went away. Those, those became the most ridiculous conversations to me because this book was alive. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was doing something at a poetic, uh, historical, mythic, psychological, economic, political. This book just was like on fire for me in a whole different set of categories. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the categories that the people that I had at least been around were talking about the Bible. They were talking about absolutes and proving and is it the word of God? But then this book 
talked about the word of God as a creative force that's unleashed in the world that sustains it and moves across the surface of the deep. You know what I mean? So everything mm-hmm. got way more revolutionary and dangerous. Um, and then we had started a church. I would have been 28 by that time. So I decided to preach through the book of Leviticus verse by verse. Hmm. So for the first year and a half. As 28 year olds do. Right. So Brave I started. Boy or dumb boy, one or the other. Go ahead. And because all, that's what all the church growth books say. Um, <laughs> so I started going through Leviticus. And actually, what happened to me when I realized that the rabbis talked about 70 faces of the Torah and how the Torah is like a gem and how you turn the scriptures and every little turn, the light refracts in a new way and you see something you didn't before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, words um, like inerrancy don't capture that. Oh, you're, it's like the wrong category. You know, is your marriage mm-hmm. winning? Is Tuesday red? You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> just the wrong categories. Is it? Um, uh, was Mozart victorious? What? what are you t- I don't even, it's like just the wrong categories. Um, but like when I realized, oh, like there's a rabbi, Lawrence Kushner, who has a book on the story in Genesis where Jacob wakes up by the side of the road and he says, God was in this place and I, I wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. Kushner has a book. It's 10 chapters. Every chapter is a completely different interpretation of that story. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, Oh yeah. I, I had come home in some way. Yeah. Um, well, maybe then I started preaching that and then you got fired. People, no, the church, people absolutely, it like lit people up in some mm-hmm. really fascinating, and the church, I mean, the, honestly, the church was like 1,000 people, 2,000 people, 3,000 people, 5,000 people, 8,000 people under the, under hearing 45 minute to an hour long sermons on Leviticus. Wow. Um, so what I found so fascinating, and it was odd how, oh, and then tikkun olam and the heal and repair of the world and the mitzvot and all of these New Testament passages suddenly when they, when they had some context and where they came from and what they were talking about. Yeah, it just got, it just got so awesome. Well, yeah, and you're, talking, <laughs> you're, you're talking about kind of the, you can, you can clearly hear the passion of, as you remember kind of this evolution for you, but you know, for a lot of people going from fixed categories and you mentioned your tradition going from fixed categories of inerrancy and authority to these dynamic categories with the book. That's yes. usually there's, there's usually a valley in there in between. Did you have a, a valley moment where things were disorienting or were you looking for that? And it was, it was all gung ho from yeah, the first time. That's a great question. No, I went through a period um, and then I kept, I went through like a, a, a period of spongness, <laughs> like a, where, uh, of like where you just, of, of taking it all apart. Mm. Um, and, oh, this is actually, this translation is this. And, and yeah, no, I, I went through, a, um, I had to release I still had some of that foundationalism that's desperate to know. Mm-hmm. I had some of that that just got beaten out of me. Um, so no, I went through a, a, a period. I remember driving in to do, to do a sermon on Sunday morning thinking, I don't know if I buy any of the, a guy rising from the dead, seriously. Mm-hmm. And it was Easter Sunday and I was yeah. supposed to give a sermon on a guy rising from the dead. Um, and, and I actually went through my greatest, uh, my greatest, what in the world is this? Once the church was like 10,000 people. And I was, <laughs> that's actually when I had the most, the bottom dropped out for me. Mm. Oh. Yeah. And um, I was like, a, the Bible, I had to sort of walk away from it and set, I set it aside for a while. I remember saying, I'm only going to give sermons on things I know for sure are true. So, mm-hmm. Um, every time I forgave somebody and I had less bitterness, that was a good thing and being generous. And I gradually, uh, and so I thought about the Bible that way. Oh, Jesus talked about that. Oh, okay. Then I can talk about that. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. I definitely had some periods where I realized, oh, I am holding on to this in a way that doesn't work. 
anymore. So that, um, I mean, that process for you, Rob, it sounds like it was a big sort of a God moment. That, that period of evolution, evolution for you was a place for meeting God differently through Scripture. Yes, and actually one of the things that, it's interesting you asked that, one of the things that was unbelievably helpful was realizing, wait, these biblical writers are using lots of different words for God. Uh-huh. Oh, they're, they're wrestling with the nature of ultimate reality. This is a word they, so an example would be, when I realized that Paul, when he's in Lystra, is talking to these Greeks, who they don't know Moses, they don't know David, they don't know kosher. You know what I mean? These, mm-hmm. these Greeks in Lystra, they're literally bowing down to Paul because they think he's a god. They think he's Zeus or Hermes come to life. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to them. He tells them, I'm urging you to turn from these worthless idols to the living. And he's about to say God. But if he says, because in Exodus, you know, it's, God's name is Yahweh. God says, my name is Yahweh for generations to come. That's how my name, call me Yahweh from here on out. Mm-hmm. But if Paul says to these Greeks, hey, I'm here to tell you about Yahweh, they're going to be like, Who, who's this guy? Yeah, right. <laughs> so when I realize, and so Paul obviously looks around at their world and realizes they have this idea of gods, small g, they have a God pantheon. The word is theos. So he, it's almost like he says, them, I'm here to tell you about the living capital G, capital T-H, theos God. Mm-hmm. It was like literally actual study of the Bible that showed me that the people who called themselves progressive and dangerous were nowhere near as progressive and innovative as people are doing in the Bible itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. So people would be like, man, we're starting a podcast. We're going to have some dangerous discussions. And I'd be like, <laughs> how about Paul in Acts 14 using a different name for God? Right. <laughs> a pagan. That was actually the real turning point is when I realized these, um, these people who are like, man, doubt and there's, and people who would call themselves like the new atheists, you can find much stronger denunciations in the Bible itself. Um, that's where for me, it became, Oh, this, this book is really clever because everything you could say about it to try and tear it down, it's self critique of itself is already a step ahead of you. (laughs) It, it's already there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The mm-hmm. day that the day that God becomes an atheist, you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This, this book has already done stuff about itself that you and your radical questioning will try to get to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never I thought mean, about that very, way. The very strength of it is in those properties that many Christians feel should not be there. Right. Diversity or internal debate. <laughs> Or being unsure of things, and it yes. it does sort of become alive, doesn't it? It's 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 something to proclaim, and not something to sort of drone on right. about. I, I remember a seminary professor of mine would say that you sort of have to know your genres. That a prayer is not a sermon. Yes, a sermon's not a lecture, right? And and uh, I remember right. clearly one of my professors saying how a sermon, the point of a sermon is to make people feel the presence of the kingdom of God. That's an event. And that's yes. this happens. That's, I mean, I think what you're saying is that preaching became an event for you when you came into touch with more what the Bible actually is and how it's acting. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's funny that you say that because uh, a very theologically astute friend of mine read this new book, What is the Bible? And he's like, actually said, your answer to what is the Bible is a question from reading the book. I don't say this explicitly, but he says, it's almost like your answer is, well, what does it do? Yeah. <laughs> what <Right>. happens? <laughs> Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in 
And you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. I remember reading, I remember Matthew chapter 28, Jesus meets his disciples on a mountain. Because when you rise from the dead, you don't go meet your friends at Kyle's house. You know what I mean? Like a mountain, a wind machine. You know what I mean? Like you got to do it proper. And uh, I remember reading and some of them worshiped and some of them doubted yeah and just being like wait 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 this is the most crap propaganda i have ever read in my life <laughs> if matthew's point is this is our man messiah the human one the, the savior of the world <laughs> chosen whatever why does he at the end be oh and by the way some of the people closest to him didn't buy it post resurrection yeah. like why would you at the end of your argument you didn't have to include that you could have just you know <laughs> hit return why would you want us to know that some of the people closest to him were like eh, i'm not sure and and also it may be i also then like it's funny like you picture jesus rising from the dead and a couple of them are like doubting you picture jesus just going Man, that I that was like that was it. Like I don't have I don't have any other. What else do I have to do? I don't have anything in the trunk of my car. Like that was sort of the like um, I don't have anything else to sort of wow you. <laughs> but but like oh this book, even that sense like Matthew. This isn't necessarily a courtroom where Matthew is making a case. He's saying something about what it means to be human and that this story has lots of room for standing at a distance going, I don't know, like that's part of it. And that belongs in this story. Um, and it was moments like that where, and it's interesting to me now because my work, I am in settings that wouldn't be considered religious or church at all. And people love these stories. People have never read the Bible love Bible stories. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it, it seemed what I keep hearing is kind of this relatability where I feel like a lot of us for a long time, we're kind of looking at each other. Like I remember as a kid, right. The idea of heaven and doing my best to pretend like that sounded good. <laughs> like everyone around me seemed to think that like singing old boring hymns for eternity, like standing next to each other was somehow the pinnacle of life. Right. And right. I feel like you do that with the Bible, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, isn't this really great? And then, but without the, the nooks and crannies, without the diversity, without the debate, the drama, the humanness of it, 
it loses its luster really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Even you even think about Jesus, the the phrase he uses about himself, he seems to prefer son of man over son of God. Mm-hmm. He, he, like of all, the, he seems to be like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, son of God, that's fine. That's actually a Roman military term. Never mind. But I, I like human one better, to be honest with you. My paraphrase of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like he keeps going. If you keep me as some ethereal son of God hovering six inches off the earth, then everything I do is sort of like I did it and you just sort of watch. But as soon as I'm a human one, this raises all sorts of questions about what it's possible for you. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, all of a sudden we have a different story now. Um, Well, Jesus trying, I mean, maybe one way of pointing the point of the whole gospel is to restore our full humanity. Absolutely. When we don't, you know, when people say very quickly, well, Jesus is God, you know, whatever that means. Right. As if that clears it up. Exactly. That's like, oh, good. Yeah, sure. Got it. So so what does that mean exactly? He did miracles. Well, I mean, plenty of people in the Bible do miracles who aren't God. Right. Right. So, I mean, what's going on here and who is Jesus and, and what is the Bible and all those things sort of hang together at some point. Right. And yeah, I, talk, yeah. I mean, talk a little bit. You mentioned, you know, thinking about Jesus and how Jesus uses the text. And I was drawn to your thought, you know, probably it, talking about in your book, what do you do with it? And so yeah. where, what, where are you now, Rob, in terms of what do you do with the Bible? What's, what do you see? In it? <laughs> uh I, first off, to me, it, real people, it, it, you have real people writing in real places at real times. So I just begin with, you start there with the humanity and any divinity you're going to stumble into, you'll get there honestly. Um, so who are these people? What were they talking about? I mean, I think right now, obviously, what's so fascinating is the Roman Empire was a propaganda machine. I mean, a Roman coin, it said peace through victory, which was Roman military propaganda, peace through victory. That's like a narrative that they told the world, which is funny. It's, it's peace. Why is it peaceful? Because everybody who opposed us is dead. Yeah. That's a certain kind of peace. <laughs> Literally, that was a narrative, peace through military victory. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have peace because we just kill everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you have lots of people right now catatonic, because the pre- we have a president who keeps repeating these phrases, irrespective of whether they're true or not, or like the gospels are more relevant than ever. How do you maintain your sanity when the powers that be are clinging to narratives that might not be good for everybody? Mm-hmm. And the, gos- I mean, the gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse one, he says, this is the beginning of the good news, which was a Roman military propaganda term. Right. Which was, when you went and crushed another enemy, you would put out a good news, which is we defeated the whoever's. And basically it meant we crucified them and conquered them, killed a bunch of them. Um, so, so I would think like, what do I do with it? Even right now, just the gospel of Mark, this is a wonderful book about how to stay grounded and centered when you're surrounded by violence of all kinds. <laughs> This is a book about what a new kind of way of being human looks like. And it involves cost and it involves an invitation to a nonviolent path of life. And it involves a sharp mind that can see through the propaganda of the empire. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so it, I mean, it provides this counter narrative. It provides a new. Yes. I just did on my podcast an episode introducing people to the idea of a counter narrative. And if you are upset or terrified or frustrated with the people who are in power, all of your anger and your protests and your calling congressman is fantastic. But without a counter narrative, you're just making noise. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the way that history works is you tell a better story. You like woo people with a better story. And this is just straight what you see in the gospels. And yet my experience, even in the past six weeks, is yoga teachers and vegan chefs and ultra athletes and moms in Ohio find this stuff more interesting than ever. Oh, by the way, the thing that you're freaked out about on CNN, Jesus had this really interesting yeah. way of thinking about that. Um, so I, I, I just find it, I've been doing a series on wisdom and Proverbs, just the book of Proverbs and wisdom. And there's this wisdom tradition 
Um, and that that's different than IQ. That's different than test scores. It's different from where you went to college. Um, that wisdom is something else and we need it more than ever. And engineers at Google may be brilliant. They also may be fools in the wisdom tradition because wisdom is something else. Um, but like that would be an example where, and then what's interesting is you have Proverbs wisdom, which is here's how to live. Here's how the world works. And then you have Ecclesiastes wisdom, which is basically wisdom for everybody who played by the rules and still got screwed. (laughs) Um, and you worked really hard and build something, and now you're going to hand it to your knucklehead son-in-law because you're going to die. Um, <laughs> but like, it's fascinating to me. It's 2017, and these I'm like I just more than ever. I have friends who never who have never been a part of a church or religious tradition. I can think of one friend right now who's like a venture capitalist. Who every time I see him, he's like, "Man, that Bible stuff, love it. Keep doing it." just keep giving me that stuff. I think it's so interesting. (laughs) And one of the, you know, one of the things that is intriguing about how you're talking and even the vocabulary you're using is I think maybe you can talk a little bit more about the categories you're using. Like you're talking about the Bible as sort of a moral textbook or a book of right and wrongs, but like, I know of other people who would say, well, we shouldn't do that because X, Y, and Z, some academic reason. But for me, what I (laughs) is it's just not compelling. And there's, yes. this, there's this privileging in your words that you're using about form, maybe not over content, but just as important as content. That, that what we're really trying to do is represent how compelling and interesting this counter narrative is. And that's gotten lost because of, I don't know, a, a privileging of content where it's just, you know, a, a list of rules or. Oh, you know, absolutely. About that. Oh, okay. So you think about, um, let's think of an example. A fig tree in ancient Near Eastern thought, fig tree was symbolic of blessing, leadership, provision, um, the temple and its beautiful structure to maintain justice and order. So Jesus is with his disciples and he's headed towards the temple for his showdown with the sort of industrial military economic complex that had become very corrupt. And he curses a fig tree and his disciples who are what? post-pubescent, high school, early 20s, sort of raw fishermen, they see him curse a fig tree. And then the fig tree actually dies, withers. This is, you'd be, it's like a rap battle. Like, oh, he did it. Because (laughs) cursing a fig tree was saying essentially this giant hierarchy of leadership and authority is corrupt and it's going down. Hmm. I mean, this this was a devastating gesture. So when someone says, and then Jesus cursed the fig tree, and then like you're saying, they give you four points on because he was shown. No, you have to think about it in guerrilla theater, performance art. This is Banksy. This mm-hmm. would have been, you know, his disciples were just like, no, he did it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, that, that would get you killed. So yeah. I, um, like one of the things is this is, uh, it was just somebody recently was telling me poetry needs history and history needs poetry. Um, Mm. Without poetry, history is just a reporting of things that happened or didn't. And you're arguing about whether it happened or didn't. Without history, poetry floats off the ground and is sort of abstract. And oftentimes in the Bible, there's all this poetry, but you also have someone going, hey, people actually did get liberated. Mm-hmm. There actually is space and time liberation from whatever it is that oppresses you. Let's mm-hmm. assume that's possible. Um, yeah. And so you're right. A lot of what people have encountered about the Bible is this, let's, let's literally pin the butterfly down until we have it perfectly in place and we can study it up close and analyze it. But by the time we've got that butterfly pinned down, it's dead and it can't fly. Mm. And that's what's actually cool is when a butterfly flies in front mm-hmm. of you. And I appreciate, Rob, I mean, your, your emphasis, too, on how, you know, history and poetry work together. And yeah. a lot of what I'm hearing you saying here is, you know, the, the energy in your voice, much of it has to do with getting in touch with things like the historical context, how things would have been heard at the time. Absolutely. And I think that's a good apology for 
really, you know, I mean, I, I, I study the Bible all the time and I teach it. And I, I don't know how many times I've read Genesis 1 to 3. I'm telling you, every time I read it, something yes. else hits me that I hadn't seen before. Something else I try to take into account from Absolutely. context. And it's valuable, isn't it? I mean, knowing something about even just who Pharisees were Absolutely. helps you understand, right? Oh, and when you think, I actually think Genesis 1, because you would say to the average person, like, okay, the Hebrew scriptures, parentheses, the Old Testament, uh, when was it, who put it, where was it put together? And like, you think Babylon, these people put these stories together. Well, why is that interesting? Well, the Babylonians had a creation story as, and the creation story was that Marduk killed Tiamat and ripped her carcass apart and made the heavens and the earth. Why is that interesting? If your creation story is rooted in violence and destruction, it makes it a lot easier to rationalize going around the world, causing violence and destruction. And then you think these exiles find themselves in a land where this is the dominant creation explanation. And then they put together, they edit together from their own tradition, a poem in which the engine of creation is not violence and destruction, but creativity, joy, and overflowing generosity. Mm-hmm. That, that poem becomes a very pointed critique of the dominant culture surrounding it. And like you, so then you start asking questions like Wall Street right now, which is the story that's driving Wall Street, the Babylonian story or the Genesis story? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. Um, and that poem, you're right. Like you read that in light of who would have put it together and why they would have found it compelling and all of a sudden that story becomes interesting, but its implications for nowadays become ferocious. Like now we have a discussion going. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's amazing. Yeah. So what would you say, can you name, you know, I think for a lot of people this feels overwhelming. I know sometimes when I uh, teach in my congregation on Bible studies, it can feel overwhelming. You're throwing Hebrew terms out and it's always by the end, they're, they're mesmerized by it, but then they leave saying, well, I could never do that. Who, where, what are the ways that you found to really give an entree or help people to learn these things? Are there resources that you've found more helpful than others in your journey? Um, I always ask, uh, uh, I think less about resources in terms of why did two questions that I find really compelling. Why did people write this down in the first place? Mm -hmm. And then why did it endure? Mm -hmm. It isn't just somebody was like this, this helps. This is powerful. This is transformative. But it wasn't just that it was how come if I'm stuck in Des Moines in February and I open up that little end table in the motel six, Gideon, some guy named Gideon has already gotten there. You know what I mean? Like how did this, library endure like it has, which I think are to equip people with better questions. So yeah. So like, um, I did a thing on teshuva, this word, the root word shuv to turn. So, or to, uh, to return. And this ancient idea of teshuva, you're on a path, you wander off the path. And this moment of realization, I've wandered off the path. And then you return to the path and your moment of I've wandered off the path has sorrow, perhaps some regret, perhaps you have to make some amends, but it also has this moment of jubilant celebration. Thank God I was shown that I wandered off the path. And then you get back on the path and that this word is the word that gets translated repent. By the time you get to Jesus saying repent, um, I've seen people get Teshuvah tattoos (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so so you you help people see can you see why this idea was so powerful can you see why repent was way more than you horrible sinner man you're going to burn if you don't do whatever um that when jesus was talking about repent he was talking about something much bigger and more buoyant and like this was radical stuff Um, I think people, you just keep asking, why did people find this compelling? It's like you hit that mother load, the nerve. And I've just found 
modern people come alive because the oldest thing they can think of is the Taco Bell at the interstate mm-hmm. exit. You know what I mean? And you go, actually, for thousands of years, people have had this idea that you can, no matter how far you've wandered off a path, you can return. We are traditionalist and, people, I guess. And yes, things. and the deep, here's one way to think about it. The deepest forces and power of the universe are going to help you return to your past. Hmm. <laughs> that's just biblical. That's straight biblical. Yet who doesn't need to hear that? Yeah. And, um, and today maybe people are realizing more and more that they do need to hear something like that, which is absolutely why everything. It's like, I always say it's all trouble, no base. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like a uh, YouTube. It's like chatter. And when you bring in a base note, mm-hmm. by the way, this thing I want to talk to you about, it's, it has moved people for like 3,000 years. Going back to your question about how do you, um, I think that people respond to your, and I would say this to every teacher, they respond to your discovery and witness. I mm-hmm. saw something. It has lit me up. Right. Let me show you what I, I feel like m- my work at some level is I saw something and now I'm going to work and the joy for me is how do I create a space, words, visuals, uh, how do I create a space where somebody might see what I saw or even better, see what I saw and then see a bunch of things I didn't even see in that. Right. Uh, and that's just compelling. People are moved by that. Well, Rob, in your, in your travels and your you know, teaching people and speaking with them, what, um, what sort of obstacles do people commonly have to engaging the Bible and the Christian faith? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Barriers or whatever we want to call them. uh, For some, immediately with the word Christian, just a whole bunch of things come to mind that have nothing to do with what we're talking about. So I always ask, what crowd am I talking to? And what do they need to just like, what are the release valves that just relax everybody? Um, mm-hmm. And like I was at a comedy club last week and did a thing. And I said, now some of you, maybe your friend brought you and you're like, what is this? What have I gotten into? And your friend said, it's okay. It's a former mega church pastor from the Midwest. <laughs> and I said, and, and your first thought was now I really do believe in hell. Uh, so So sometimes I'll just ask, what is the thing? Or for example, with the Bible, I wouldn't, lots of settings I'm in now that have, that aren't obviously religious at all. I will start in, like I just did an hour show on how architecture shapes us. And at the end, oh, by the way, you know how the Bible begins. It begins with a poem in which the poet reminds you and wants you to know that the trees were pleasing to the eye. Right. So what's fascinating is in the Hebrew world, thousands of years ago, it's as if the poet was saying, oh, by the way, design is not something superfluous that gets tacked on at the end. Design is central and integral to everything. And beauty isn't a nice luxury. Beauty is absolutely necessary for, for life. Mm-hmm. Um, so oftentimes I, I start all sorts of different places depending on where I am. And I'm not trying to fit the Bible in. I only use the Bible if it's the best thing that helps whatever I'm talking about. Um, and that's what happened. I began being ruthless with the Bible. I will not use the Bible because I have some guilt like I'm supposed to use the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Right. I, I made up this new criteria. This is a while ago. I, will, I only use the Bible if you and I were having dinner and we were talking about something and I thought, naturally and unselfconsciously, oh, there's like a great story about this. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think, actually the problem for a lot of people in faith communities is they're supposed to use it because you're supposed to use it. Well, and it, it sounds like, you know, that it's a lot easier to talk maybe with those who have had a time of separation from the church. Maybe they grew up in it and have gotten away from it. Um, have grew up with the Bible and gotten away from it. I mean, that mirrors your story. You mentioned earlier that you had to take a break from it. And it's almost like there's this, we, we have our own, 
we have our own narrative that we bring to the text yes. and right, we right, right. interpret it through that. And have you found that it's a lot easier to help people find the way you think of the Bible more compelling when they haven't had a lot of maybe religious education or background? Um, uh, yes. Yes. But I would also add to that the number of people who were handed something about the Bible and something within them was like, ah, oh, man, there's something about this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And when somebody can come along and say, oh, yeah, you were handed foundationalism. You were handed, you, you were handed a bunch of answers to questions no one's asking. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of people deep down, they know it's more dangerous. Even a cursory reading of the Gospels are like, hey, by the way, it's the religious establishment that clearly has the problem with Jesus. And all the people who've been kicked to the edges, who he has drawn to, that narrative is so straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people are like, then how come people are getting kicked out of schools and churches and for, for not fitting with the system when the Jesus story is about somebody who was killed by the system for not fitting? That like narrative is so straightforward. Um, well, we've been caught up in empire again, haven't we? Exactly. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, at least in my experience, if they do come from the background you were referencing your question, when someone comes along and says, oh, by the way, that first line of Mark, you know what he's talking about there. They absolutely come alive because they're like, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Some of them worshipped and some of them doubted. I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is my experience. That sometimes you stand at a distance and sometimes you lean in. Sometimes you worship, sometimes you doubt. That's been my experience. Um, I think a lot of people, when you show them, like you think about the book of Job and Job's three knucklehead friends show up and they're all trying to offer explanations for why he's suffering, but all of their explanations are lame. But then you realize the writer of Job has an explanation for why he's suffering. And that the writer's explanation is God and the devil made a bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As if, like, you think about somebody who's like, why did I get cancer? And you're like, uh, because God and Satan made a bet. <laughs> oh, good, good. Now I feel better. Now I feel like I have the answers I needed. So then you realize it's almost <laughs> like the writer of Job is punking the reader going, um, I know these three knuckleheads, their explanations don't work, but I'm going to, the, the very nature of explanations doesn't work. It's not that these are bad explanations. Looking for explanations sometimes is absurd. Case in point, God and Satan. Um, in my experience, people, something about that goes, you're right. My parents got divorced and I've been looking for 20 years for an explanation and none of my trying to make sense of it has worked. Hmm. Um, so I just keep going back to why did people find this story interesting? Oh, because that writer is like, punking the very idea that you can have a rational, logical explanation for suffering. And um, for me, that's one of the most liberating things about reading the Bible, that absolutely. those questions are not answered, but yes. we're watching people journey through some of those same struggles that we have. And it's, it's a deep spiritual connection that goes back a long, long, long time. Yes. And now all of a sudden, what the text did is it got us all thinking about that, which is unexplained and unexplainable. And now we're experiencing some solidarity from whatever our background is, from whatever it is that we suffered from. Like that's a classic example to me of what the Bible does. Give me any crowd of people. Give let's do five minutes on Job and let's just make that observation Mm -hmm. that, that the opening story is completely insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of a sudden something has now happened that transcends a, a religion. It transcends background. It transcends political party. That's what the Bible does. Right. Um, and, and, and writing a story like that to make you upset, oh, not to make you happy, but that's, that's part of the God, tradition. It's, it, and it is genius yeah. at some deep It's really neat. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually what happened to me is I was the pastor of a large church and then I left it. And I, was a, and I, and I sort of had various relationships with the Bible, but always... Um, I mean, from Leviticus on, like, this book is so much better than anybody thinks it is. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in all these spaces where people are like, the Bible, are you kidding me? And I, over and over, CEOs, 
I mean, like you, um, I just did an event at Deepak Chopra's center and I pull out this story or that verse and people come, they love it. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't actually go, no, wait, you're doing the Bible. God, by the way, there's a story about this in the Bible. Every person in the place was like, wait, what? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then you tell it, these stories work. And that's the thing actually makes me sad about lots of pastors who are trying to preach from it and are all tied up in knots is if I could yank them out of their setting and help them come back to this book without all of the stuff they have with it. Right. Um, man, it cooks. Like it, pressing it, reset. This thing, you put it out there where it has to compete because no one's coming. People are, some people are coming to hear your sermon because they've been coming to hear sermons forever. That's where their feet take them on a Sunday. But trust me, you can come out here where no one cares and you bust some of this out. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know. It works. It's, yeah. it's just, yeah. So I become some weird, I, I'm like, you're a Bible freak. Well, what's funny is I, I do find myself like, wait, what an interesting path this has taken me where I find it more interesting than ever yeah. and compelling and convicting and relevant. All the words that I would be like, Oh, please don't use those words. I, I, I am totally. <laughs> well, that's a part of that evolution that we talked about at the beginning, yes. right? That's, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, listen, Rob, um, we're coming to the end of our time here. Well, this was um, great. Thank you so much. You know, um, just as we end here, tell us again, the title of your book, tell us the subtitle too, because it's nice and long. The book is called What is the Bible? How an Ancient Library of Poems, Letters, and Stories Can Change the Way You Think and Feel About Everything. That's promising a lot. So, um, yeah, and, I, and I'm, um, I talk about why are the genealogies so boring? Why is the book of Leviticus there? Why, uh, why is Abraham supposed to offer his son? What's the deal with the flood? Um, what's the worst question you can ask when reading the Bible? What about the violence? I do a, a, a quite a bit on how to, how to think about some of the, the violence. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. book's all over the place. Yeah. And I purposely, it has an arc. It's also completely all over the place. And then at the end of the book is a disclaimer where I say, this book is all over the place, kind of like the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, and we're looking forward to that, Rob. That's coming out in May, if I remember yes. right. Yes, okay. yes, yes. That's great. Okay, listen, Rob, thanks so much for being Wonderful on. Wonderful talking to you. Great time talking with you. Thanks for um, talking with us about the Bible. Excellent. See you, Rob. Peace. Bye-bye. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning into this first episode of the podcast. Be sure to check out Rob's book when it comes out, What is the Bible? Remember, you can find him online at robbell.com, and I'm sure many other places online. You can follow me on Twitter at jbias, J-B-Y-A-S. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Pete Enns and also on Facebook at Peter Enns. I invite you to visit my website, PeteEnns.com, and you can check out my latest books there. For example, uh, The Bible Tells Me So and The Sin of Certainty. You can sign up for my newsletter, uh, see my speaking schedule, and most important, you can continue on my blog, the conversations that we've started here. Thanks again, everyone. We hope you can join us next time where we'll be talking with Richard Rohr.